The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. The global trade in wildlife is worth hundreds of billions of dollars annually and includes both the illegal and legal trade in animals. While the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora boasts a membership of 183 countries, many argue it is insufficient, unsustainable and ineffective to protect vulnerable, endangered and critically endangered species. The system is full of loopholes which allow trade in wildlife to continue unchecked with very little ability to differentiate between legal and illegal trade. Calls to end the global wildlife trade have been growing throughout this pandemic, not only due to the likelihood that COVID-19 is a zoonotic pathogen, meaning it comes from animals, but also due to the sheer cost of the pandemic to human life and economy. As the human population grows, pressure on wildlife and wild places also grows, meaning more interaction between the two and more likelihood of conflict and disease transmission. I invited Kelly Dent of World Animal Protection to chat about why we need a blanket ban on the trade in wildlife. Kelly is a lifelong activist and has 25 years experience lobbying and campaigning on climate change, poverty, corporate accountability, trade, labor and human rights around the world. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Kelly. Thanks, Lee. It's lovely to have you here, Kelly. I'm going to jump in and ask you a question I ask everybody. What does doing good mean to you personally? Oh, thanks, Lee. And it's great to be talking to you. I mean, doing good for me personally means making a world that is a just world, a world that is a sustainable world, and a world where we tackle inequality as much as possible. And I think throughout my career, I've been really fortunate to work in you know, jobs that actually have purpose and where I've been able to live out you know, what, what I see as making the world a better place. And I've worked in youth work back in the days when conditions there were really, really horrible, through to living and working overseas in, in Sri Lanka and Indonesia. I worked for a union for a while as an organiser and then worked for Oxfam, working on poverty and development, food security, human rights, and very recently have started working with World Animal Protection. I've also, throughout many of those jobs, had had a really strong focus on climate change. I'm really passionate about climate change. I worked in that area with, with Oxfam. And I also really think it's important to make sure that the voices of people who are affected and affected communities are really heard. And in the case of animals, that that, uh, people are raising the issues that 
affect you know animals in farms and, and animals in the wild every day. I'm a big supporter of solidarity and solidarity action, and a lot of my career has has involved that. Yep, you've had a certainly had a long career in advocacy and activism spaces. What kind of intersections do you see across all of those different sectors and spaces when it comes to the you know that ultimate goal of achieving change? Some of the intersections that I see are around challenging and transforming systems and the systems that allow for exploitation, whether that's of people, whether that's of the environment, whether that's of the world's resources, whether that's of people. So really challenging those systems that allow for exploitation. It's about challenging power, about seeing a more equitable world and a more sustainable world. I mean, I really think that people have pushed the limits of the planet's resources so far that, that I fear, you know, that, that we may not come back from some of these. I, I hope we can, but, but I fear that we can't. And I think that it's so important that we, we try to, to tackle that and really have a better relationship between animals, people and the planet. So just a more sustainable world, a world that we live in more consciously, I think. I know a lot of activists spend their lives working on one issue. Um, You know, it becomes their life's work. But it sounds to me that you see those intersections and interconnections across lots of different issues and you've actively worked and and tried to work across addressing them in lots of different sectors is is that something that you've consciously done yeah, that's a really good question i don't see career as and my work because i'm really lucky in that both my my work and my job and my life as an activist are all intertwined so i don't have to make those those distinctions and i feel incredibly privileged to have been able to to do that i don't see Uh, work as a kind of upward trajectory to something. For me, it's a collection of experiences that contribute to addressing power and inequality and making the world a better place. So what that enables me to do is to follow interests, to follow what I think is important, you know, when I was working with, with Oxfam, I was working on labour rights and women's rights and then ended up going into a new role within that organisation where I was working more on food justice and climate change. And I got really curious about all that. And I went on to do a master's in climate change and, and did you know quite a few years of, of climate change advocacy and action. So, yeah, I see us, the systems, as being really interconnected and that that path for a better world can happen in many, many different ways. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I really love that approach. I think it's so different to that idea that we have to go one better each time we get a new job or, or we have to stick to this one thing and progress our way through the levels of that sector. Absolutely. So you're working with World Animal Protection now, and a large part of that focus at World Animal Protection is looking at ending the trade in wildlife. Can you talk us through the 
industry of wildlife trade and and how it functions currently? Yes. So wildlife trade is something that World Animal Protection has been working on for a long time. But of course, it's just had, you know, increased attention exponentially because of the the pandemic and and, um, COVID-19. So what uh, we've been trying to look at and tackle is the drivers of the wildlife trade. So things like wild animals that are consumed, that are traded as pets, so exotic pets. So think of parrots, otters, for example, animals that are used in fashion or luxury as luxury goods, animals that are used in entertainment and animals that are used in traditional medicine. So they're a lot of the drivers of the wildlife trade, if you like. And so we've been looking at the consumer-led side of of the demand for for wildlife because that's as important as the actual, because the demand sort of feeds the the supply, if you like. So they're the sorts of things we've been looking at. But most recently with COVID-19, we've seen a real opportunity to really elevate the issue of how we treat animals and the need to actually look at increasing our efforts towards a global wildlife trade ban. And that's one of the key things that I'm working on at the moment is looking at a number of different institutions and bodies as to how we can bring about a ban in the trade in wildlife. And one of the areas that we're, uh, one of our focuses is the the G20. And and I can can come back to some of that if if that's of um, interest. In terms of the actual wildlife trade, it's interesting because you've got the the legal trade in wildlife and that's worth about $188 billion annually. It's um, staggering. And then you've got the illegal trade in wildlife. And again, these are difficult to estimates and and estimates vary. So, you know, what I'm giving you are credible, but they're not the only estimates out there. Uh, And and the illegal trade is valued at between about seven and 23 billion US dollars. And it's actually up there with a lot of the illicit trades that we see in the world. So human trafficking, arms, drug trafficking. So so it's it's huge. And I think the other thing that's important to mention when we're talking about legal and illegal wildlife trade is that one can mask the other. So it's very hard to tell if something's being trafficked, uh, if if a particular animal product, an animal, animal part comes from an animal that's not allowed to be traded or an animal that is allowed to be traded. And often the same routes are used. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Are used to um, trade or traffic legal or illegal animals or their parts or, or derivatives. Yeah. And I imagine that the mechanisms to check whether, you know, that that trade item is illegal or legal are difficult to enforce in many places where this happens? Oh, that's incredibly difficult to enforce because, you know, you're often relying on officials at borders having to make decisions about whether this is a bone from this type of animal or that type of animal. And they're not trained in this area. I mean, even 
you know, those who do their job well are not trained in, in this area. So it's incredibly difficult and, and, and really complicated. And a really good example is the pangolin where, you know, it is one of the most protected animals in the world. It is critically endangered, yet it is still one of the most trafficked. How can that be? I mean, this is a good example, I think, of where good good goes wrong. And I think that how it happens is, is a number of ways. It happens through their scales, the pangolin scales are used in um, traditional medicine. And even though it's now classified as endangered, we see the trade in stockpiles of pangolin scales, except it isn't always the stockpile of pangolin. And how do you tell if something is a stockpile or it's not a stockpile? And then you've got the kind what what we were what I was mentioning before, you've got the illegal trade in the pangolin. You've got the local, the domestic capture for the use of its meat. So you've got the more global trade in terms of its scales. And then you've got the more domestic or regional capture for its meat. And yeah, this is is not supposed to happen because they're a critically endangered species you know yet they are still the most trafficked mammal in the world where are the particular hotspots for for trafficking in in wildlife i think the regions that supply some of the highest numbers of traded species they include south america central and southeast africa the himalayas southeast asia and also australia and that the reason the regions that drive the highest demand for legal and illegal wildlife trade are countries like the US, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, that includes China and the European Union. And remember when we're saying the trade, I'm talking about everything here. So the exotic pets, food, traditional medicine, entertainment. Yeah, yeah, wow. It's incredible the scale of it, isn't it? While it's obvious that animals suffer horribly at the hands of humans due to the wildlife trade, what are some of the implications of the large-scale removal of animals from the wild, you know, for example, around biodiversity or impact on threatened and endangered species and wild places? The impact of removal on animals from the wild is, as you said, really terrible for the individual animals. So the way they're captured, the way they're transported, the way they're stored, it's a really stressful and horrible experience for the animals. But as you say, there are also really big issues and implications for biodiversity. Because if you take away an animal's habitat, or if you trade in a particular species and take that species out of the ecosystem, then the ecosystem becomes unbalanced. You also often see species that are traded into countries where they don't live, then coming into wild spaces and ecosystems as alien species and really damaging again that 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 ecosystem and that biodiversity of that region. What you also see when you take away wild spaces and decrease biodiversity is you see an increased contact between animals and humans. And this is where you know we see a lot of human wild animal conflict. So with 
particularly with, say, some poorer communities and wild animals who may raid their food supplies because they don't have their wild spaces to, to get their food from. Uh, but you also, that's where you see when humans and animals really come up close to each other, humans and wild animals, that's also where you see what we call zoonotic transmission, which is the transmission of pathogens from, uh, from animals to humans, which is what is very widely believed to have caused COVID-19 and a number of other zoonotic diseases, you know, over the past decades. And, you know, given the increase in human settlement and the spread into wild places and the, the lack of habitat for wild animals, is it likely that we will see more of these zoonotic diseases crossing from animals to humans? It's certainly very widely predicted that that is what we're going to see. And I think there's been a fair bit of commentary around about talking since SARS that we would see another pandemic. It was just just a question of when. When we talk about also loss of biodiversity, that also often happens because land is also being cleared for farming, so for far, for industrialised farming. And it's a bit of a, a myth that that is then because it's necessary to feed an increasing global population, which is not actually the case because if you look at the land that's cleared for livestock and livestock feed to feed that livestock, it's over 70% of available land. Yet the amount of protein and calories that that 70% provides to the world is much, much less. I think it's around 16%, something like that. It could be a little bit higher. Um, but, but I guess my point is that that argument doesn't stack up because most of the world is fed predominantly, not exclusively, on plant-based calories and plant-based protein, yet that amount of land accounts for a really tiny amount. It's reminding me of reading Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, and, you know, talking about how much of Australian land is used for cattle and, and livestock and, you know, how much damage that causes to the land and to biodiversity and why are we not growing plant foods that are native and will at the same time regenerate our biodiversity. Yeah, Bruce Pascoe's book, Wild Emu, is a, is a fabulous addition to, to the debate. I think really important body of work. I, I loved it. I've read it a couple of times. I think there's also what you were saying about land raises an important issue as well about water. So it's also water usage, right? Because you need much more water for animals than what you do for crops that are grown for food. And then, of course, that, there's, there's that whole realm of, you know, why don't we use plants that are native? And we're seeing that increasing a little bit in Australia. We've certainly seen this, and, and, I, and I think it's a, a, an amazing, you know, 
a development that you know I certainly try and encourage in in my own personal life, and but we've also seen this um, in some of the Latin American states too, like oh, sorry countries. So um, countries like Peru, which have just had a real resurgence around local foods. I mean, sadly, some of their food is then exported, and so some of that you know, local nutritious food is not necessarily available to, to local communities, but that is changing as well, right, as we look at those, um, those food sovereignty issues. It's interesting. Um, I, I heard recently that along the, you know, Victorian border with the Murray River, which has traditionally been a, um, you know, a cattle dairy farming kind of region, that the lack of available water is seeing a huge amount of dairy farmers pick up their farms and move to southwestern Victoria. And, you know, as you're speaking, I'm wondering, well, what is going to be the impact on land down there now? We have to rethink the way we farm and that whole industrialised farming model. I mean, much of and we've also seen the Know, the Murray Darling Basin and the the kind of the the water wars there over the, over access to, to to water and you know for um you know crops that are that are very water thirsty but I also think we're going to see in response to what you were just saying about the land that the farmers have left due to lack of water it's going to take a really long time to to rehabilitate that that land yes and if they they're probably unable to invest in you know that rehabilitation at scale and doing it in non-harmful ways or, or, or ways that don't further harm the environment. Yeah, I mean, again, there's a small body of farmers out there that are really understanding the need for biodiversity on their properties, but it's long term. And I think when we're looking at the problems that we're facing today, which are, which are complex problems, and, you know, it's a very volatile time that we're living in, you actually have to look I believe, at longer term solutions, not the quick fixes. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that my work across the, the decades has shown me is that things take time and we have to not be too impatient for that. I mean, as a, as a younger activist and worker, I was always so impatient to see that change happen and it wasn't going to happen unless I was working 24-7 and then I was like, nah, you know what, that's just not true. It takes time and it takes awareness to be raised to a level where people where it's where it's top of people's mind or if it's not top of people's mind it's it's in people's consciousness right so they then make decisions yeah yeah absolutely so going back to the wildlife trade what does the current regulatory environment look like for at a global level for wildlife trade so for the legal trade in wildlife you have the CITES Convention, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna. And that basically regulates what countries are and are not allowed to trade. What I would say about CITES, though, is it is primarily a convention that allows trade. So, yes, it protects endangered species, but it is primarily to facilitate trade. And there's criticism of CITES in that it's quite slow to list animals. So it's often not till an animal is critically endangered that it will make it to the highest level of protection. And, and CITES is like a permit system and there's, there's a number of different levels. Then you've also got in domestic countries, you might have 
various rules and regulations that will prohibit the import and the export of certain animals or their, their parts or derivatives. And then you've got in particular countries, you might have certain regulations that will prohibit the domestic trade or consumption of, animal, of certain types of animals. So an example there would be very recently in China, we saw China bring in a temporary ban in the aftermath of the outbreak of COVID-19 to prevent the consumption of terrestrial mammals, so um, terrestrial, so land-based animals, and that was then made made permanent. And so you might see these these types of of bans as well. When this type of regulation comes in at a domestic level. Does it push it further underground or does it push it onto other species? For example, aquatic animals, if, if land-based animals are prohibited? Look, it's a good question. And this is why we say that this is why World Animal Protection is looking for a global trade ban. Because if you just ban in certain countries or certain species or you bring in certain biosecurity protocols, which is another way that, that the trade is, is regulated, then you always run the risk of it then transferring to other species or to finding some type of loophole, which is why we see the calls to close down markets where wild animals are sold is only part of the problem because there's a lot of other circumstances where people and animals, and we've talked about some of those, come into contact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that any step is a step in the right direction if it reduces the trade and the risk of transmission of zoonotic diseases from animals to people, but also, you know, reduces the, the trade in those particular animals. But absolutely, there can be unintended consequences and spin-offs from, from that. What do you think are the biggest barriers to achieving change at this level? I think there's a number of barriers. I think it's technically possible. I think political will is really significant and politics and political will because often we're talking about short-termism here and we've already talked about how change needs to be more long-term and usually longer term than an election cycle. So political will, I think also global leadership, I think more and more we're seeing a less global outlook and a less of a global focus and so many of the issues that we're dealing with need global solutions. I mean, you know, animals don't know borders. Climate change doesn't know borders. These, these are, you know, global issues that need global solutions. So, you know, I think political will is definitely a really um, important issue. Another barrier to change is that we're seeing a very unequal world, a divided world. So we're seeing growth in wealth at the same time as we're seeing a lot of people in, in poverty as well. And I think that when you see growing wealth, you see a growing demand for luxury products, for luxury experiences, to own exotic pets. So I think that some of this consumer demand, which is fueling the trade, is also a real barrier. Like it isn't cool to for a celebrity to take selfies you know, with 
an exotic bird, snake, otter. These are wild animals and they need to be in the wild, not in somebody's small apartment. Now, and also people when they when they travel, like we many people that are listening will have traveled and will have had experiences with animals. And you know, again, this is not to say that people are bad. I mean, I have ridden an elephant in Thailand many, many decades ago. Um, I now understand how that ele elephant was treated that enabled me to be able to ride it. And I would, would never do anything like that again. So it's around raising awareness as well. But again, being really conscious. So choosing experiences where you know, if you are traveling, where the animal is in control, so it's in its wild environment and may or may not be around when you're there, right? You know, if it's a big reserve, for example. Uh, so it can get away. It's not kept in a cage. It's not been trained, you know, to, to, to pander to what it is that, that you need from that experience. Um, you know, trekking in, in the wilderness or, or not even necessarily the wilderness. I mean, I was you know, walking in Sydney just recently and saw, you know, lo lots of little animals around in, in our little, you know, wild habitats there as well. Yeah, I think there's something in, um, there's definitely a, a tension in the tourism and conservation space where tourism brings money to be spent on conservation within these places and attracts people there because of the animals. And I think it, it, it's a consistent argument that happens is where is the balance here between drawing people to a destination knowing that there are wild animals around, but also protecting those animals and not getting them used to hu humans and endangering them further. There is tension there, absolutely. And I mean, really, it is about wild animals are a finite resource. So wild animals are going to do much better if they're kept in the wild. But there are experiences like you know, there are some, you know, sanctuaries that are looking after, say, animals that, that are not able to live in the wild um, for, for a range of good reasons, not, not animals that have been, you know, captured and put in sanctuaries, but who have been part of, you know, wildlife trade or whatever and haven't been and are not able to go back to the wild. So you can see animals in those type of environments, for example. And then there are a lot of circumstances where you can see animals in their wild space. I mean, snorkeling is one example. I mean, I was not long ago in Fiji and I saw some of the most amazing manta rays and they were just in the wild, you know, and we were told to keep a certain distance from them. They didn't always come. The day we were there, there was four of them and they were just majestic, you know, and they're very curious. We were told to stay away from them. They kind of kept coming up and looking and it was like, no, I can't touch you. There are still those experiences and I think that as we educate people more, these are beautiful spaces and their inhabitants are wild and majestic. We can change people's way of thinking so that they can, you know, access some of these. We, we also can see, you know, I know that not everybody may be able to, to access some of these spaces, but we can also you know, there's, there's a lot of good technological innovations, right, where you can, where technology can help bring this experience. And in terms of communities, look, it's an important one. And I think that communities can benefit 
enormously from tourism, but it doesn't have to be exploitative tourism. I mean, we've we've seen the growth in tourism that is more ethical, that is more respectful of local environments, people, you know, animals. And this, I think, is going to be a growth area. So absolutely, people need to be able to make their livelihoods from tourism, but they need to also shape that because there will be no tourism if there is no animals, if there, you know, are no, you know, snow-capped mountains, if there are no glaciers because we've destroyed them all. Yeah, you know, that's a really, really good point. And something that, you know, I've I've also worked on in the activist space for many years around, you know, not exploiting human populations through tourism. And and I think awareness of the exploitation in that tourism sector of animals has actually um, permeated further than awareness of human exploitation in the tourism sector. And that's certainly something we've seen with orphanage tourism and, and other kinds of engagement with communities. But I want to pick up on something you said. You said wildlife is finite. It's a finite resource. And I think that is a really good response to the argument that comes around the tension between the impact of regulatory measures and how that affects humans who rely on the wildlife trade for their own livelihoods. Yeah. I mean, it it's comes up all the time. And I mean, we're talking about the commercial exploitation of, of wild animals. So we're not talking about where communities may hunt for subsistence reasons, where they use all of the animal. And we're also certainly not talking about vilifying the people who are, you know, often quite poor, who are at the bottom of the supply chain, uh, you know, who are capturing animals for their livelihoods. To give an example and to go back to the pangolin there, hunters are paid around 4 to $14 per live pangolin. This is, this is in, in Uganda, but it would be comparable across similar countries. So they're paid a very small amount. And then you've got the trader, the intermediary person, the trafficker, because remember, pangolins are not supposed to be, be traded. That person in that, that hunter in that poor community is getting a really small amount of money. Now, of course, they may need that money to feed their family. And this is where we say that there needs to be a careful examination of livelihoods and a good transition from one type of livelihood to another. And I think this is what really interests me with my development background and now working in with World Animal Protection and working with animals is how do we make sure that we don't pit poor people and animals against each other, but at the same time we recognise that this isn't sustainable, but that that poor hunter does need a livelihood and does need to feed their families. This is a problem that we can solve through alternative livelihood programs. We've done it all over the world and it is possible. It is a matter of sitting down with people and looking at what's really happening, not assuming we know, and about what are some of these viable alternatives that would interest you, that would give you the income that you need you know, to be able to feed clothes and house your family. That brings up 
you know, investment in conservation versus investment in, you know, dealing with the the symptom of the lack of conservation or the lack of wild places. And, you know, if wild animals and wild places don't exist anymore, there will be no food for those people to hunt. There will be no jobs for them to have that are reliant on the tourism that is bought by those wild spaces. So, you know, I think there's a there's a challenge there in getting people to fund the conservation rather than the response to the lack of conservation. Yeah, look, that's absolutely right. And we talked before about the finite resources of the world and you know, how once they're gone, they're gone. And this is going to have huge implications for, for everyone on the planet. It reminds me of a book I read recently called Resurrection Science, and it covers advancements in technology, DNA technology, that might allow us to bring extinct animals back eventually. Um, and in the book, I think it covers six different uh, species that have been extinct. One of them is a frog that was found in a very small area under a waterfall, I think in in the Congo. Oh, not the Costa Rica one? No, not no, the golden toad? Oh, okay. Africa. Um, and then, you know, there's the passenger pigeon in the US. The thylacine I, is not covered in detail, but it's talked about. And one of the theories put forward in the book is, is that if we go down that path of resurrecting extinct species, there would be less emphasis on and funding for conservation as people will become complacent. They'll just say, well, oh yes, they're going extinct, but we'll just put them on ice and we'll resurrect them when we've fixed their habitat. What do you think of this? I think technology can bring about some really useful solutions, but I think we can't rely solely on technology. It shouldn't be a quick fix or a short-term response. We, again, I go back to that. We need to look at the world we live in and how to preserve the world that we're living in. And looking at, oh, well, you know, we can just bring an extinct animal back. I mean, how long will that take? How much money will that take? How ethical is that? And what will it do if you introduce an animal that hasn't been around for a long time into an ecosystem where it's the other, you know, animals around that ecosystem have changed? So, you know, I, I certainly don't want to say that um, technological advances aren't important. And of course, science is critical to, to our understanding and acting on, on um, some of the complex problems we're seeing. But I think we need to be careful about seeing technology as a fix. We've seen this also in the, the climate change space as well, right? Where we talk about these quick fixes, whereas, no, hang on, actually, what we really need is just for people to use less carbon is what we need. Kelly, what is it about your work that you're most naturally drawn to? And on the other side of things, what do you find most challenging? So I think what I'm naturally drawn to is speaking truth to power, advocating for change, and also supporting people and communities to have a voice, and in the case of animals, to, to be a voice for those animals, to bring about change. So 
know, I'm a big supporter of, of the power of diversity of voices who, who are impacted. Uh, I'm also a big supporter of mentoring people in the advocacy and activist space because the more advocates and activists we have, the better in my opinion. Those are really important to me. Oh, what I find difficult, it's, um, look, coronavirus, I guess, the times we're in now, so COVID-19, the times we're in now is raised some, you know, interesting questions, I think, and given me opportunity to reflect. I think there's all sorts of really good things about being able to work from home more, and I hope that people who want to are able to, but I absolutely, and I think for some people it's been incredibly difficult, so it hasn't been roses for everyone. However, I find it difficult not to have that interaction and that discussion with um, people in a face-to-face environment. I've also found it difficult not travelling. For me, travel just continually challenges me, continually opens my eyes to the world and reminds me that the world that I live in and I inhabit is just a small part of the world. And so I get a huge amount of energy from that. So I find those things at the moment quite challenging. I really like to bounce ideas and problems off people. I believe that, you know, robust discussion and debate brings about, you know, robust solutions and that it's a good thing to have that. And yes, you can have this online. Yes, you can have it on Zoom. I mean, like the rest of the world, I've done loads of Zoom calls, but it's just, it just, isn't always the same. So those are the things that I've found, you know, a bit difficult. Yeah, I have to agree with all of that. Is there someone you can think of that's been your greatest influence in doing good? Look, there's so many people. This is such a hard question to answer. I mean, I think for me, some of the people that have really influenced me are just some of the incredibly brave people around the world that I've worked with who at great personal cost have, you know, fought for Right. So I'm thinking about people like a young woman activist in the sportswear industry in Indonesia called Pakati, who looking at a better world for uh, garment workers producing for sportswear brands. I'm thinking about and who faced a lot of violence. I'm thinking about people like Sinai in Kiribati, who her and fellow activists basically are living and working in a country that might disappear because of climate change. And the, 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 their bravery, you know, in, in the face of what they stand to, to lose, I think is just amazing. Some of the farmers that I've seen in, you know, in Cambodia who have been kicked off their land at, at gunpoint because of a the land's been taken away to build, you know, a sugar mill and they've fought for a decade to get compensation and, and they have, you know, so it's those those people that like, you know, truly I think humble me. I mean, there, there are other people out there as well, you know, that, that are much more well-known. I mean, I've worked with amazing people at Oxfam. I work with amazing people at World Animal Protection. I mean, if we look at the also more recently in terms of the aftermath of the bushfires, you know, all those people who your everyday heroes and activists that rescued animals, the carers, the wise carers who kind of looked after them. I mean, those people I think are, you know, who I get a lot of inspiration and, and hope from. 
What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? I think um, the greatest social challenge of our time is how we tackle inequality and how we learn to live in the world now in harmony with nature and how we look at, at, at an approach where we are stewards of a healthy planet, a healthy planet for people, for animals. Um, and I don't just mean a planet that's healthy for humans. I mean, it's healthy for animals, it's healthy for rivers, it's healthy for our minds, you know, everything, our well-being. So I think they're the greatest challenges. I also think that we have a real window of hope right now and a real opportunity to, to address you know, some of the issues of our time. And I really hope that we take those and that we don't look for quick fixes, that we don't look to do things that damage people, animals and the planet more, that we see that there's a real opportunity to make change for the, for the better. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? We need to have global solutions to global problems. We are all in this together. One of the ways that we can do that is through democracy. Another way we can do this is by being conscious of how we live our lives and making conscious decisions. They may not always be perfect decisions. It doesn't matter. Think about you know what you're doing, how you're living your life, what you're eating, where your money's going and what actions you can take, whatever they are, to make the world a better place. And I think the other thing I would say is that we do need to listen to the science. Kelly, where's your favourite place on earth? I've travelled extensively. My favourite place on earth is anywhere that I can walk to. So a couple of years back, I walked the Camino from St. Jean-Peterport to Santiago de Compostela. That was 800 kilometres through rural Spain. And last weekend, I walked the first 50 kilometres of the coastal walk, which goes from Palm Beach in Sydney's north, and it finishes in Otford in Sydney's south. So we did the first 50 kilometres, and it was just really spectacular. So anywhere I can walk, basically, and just be out there. Amazing. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading lots of books. <laughs> I, never, I never just read one. Yeah, I'm the so same. I, <laughs> so yesterday I actually started um, Such a Fun Age by, uh, I think it's Kylie Reid. And then I'm also, I decided to use the slightly slower pace of life to tackle the Russian classics. Wow. So I'm also maybe halfway through uh, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Wow. And then the other one that I've been reading for a little while is Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. And it's about cognitive dissonance, mm. uh, you know, between people's approach to, to animals and yet yeah, why we, we do those things. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm reading. Um, I'm also working through Layla Syed's workbook on me and white supremacy, but I'm only up to chapter three of that at the moment. Excellent. Excellent. They all sound like excellent books. What about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? 
Yeah, I love listening to podcasts when I'm doing the housework, when I'm gardening, when I'm pottering around. I, I really, really like it. So I've listened to, to a few episodes of your podcast and I want to listen to some more of those. <laughs> Thank you. I also regularly listen to 7am, uh, sort of very short, snappy pieces. I am listening at the moment to Nice White Parents, which is, you know, really about actually when good intentions go wrong, I guess, and and privilege, really. And I'm also listening to Debutante, which is the story of um, Aboriginal young women and the balls. It's Miranda Tapsell and uh, and Nakila Lewis, I think. Amazing. Is that her name? Nakaya. Nakila. Nakaya. Yeah. yeah. And I've just finished The Rabbit Hole. Yes. Someone else was telling me about that one. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, it is really amazing. It's looking at essentially how social media and in particular YouTube has in some instances, you know, driven um, people towards right-wing ideologies. It's, it's quite, it's really fascinating. Well, Kelly, thank you for such a wide ranging and fascinating conversation. Your experience over a whole range of different sectors as an activist really speaks to me as a fellow activist and somebody that is, you know, really driven by seeing change occur. So I'm very grateful to you for spending your time here with me today and I wondered if you could share some more details about your campaign to end the wildlife trade at World Animal Protection so that people can get involved if they want. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. So if people are interested in the ban on the wildlife trade and in particular our focus on the G20 which is coming up in November of this year, encourage them to go to the World Animal Protection website. There's a lot of information on the World Animal Protection website, both on the trade in wild animals, but there's also a petition there that people can sign if, if they like and various um, pieces of information they can share or, or use, you know, in their, on their Zoom social calls or in the parks or wherever it is that we're able to, you know, socialise again in, in the near future. So, and um, I'm also on Twitter at Kelly Dent um, and on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks very much, Lee. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.